disagreeing agreeably. I am Jennifer Nassour, a Republican. And I'm Jesse Murmel, and I am a Democrat. And today we are on the eve of an election, a midterm election that has been consuming all of our lives, whether we're actively working on it or just consuming any amount of media. It feels like you can't turn around without thinking about the midterms. And so today we are going to talk a little bit of nerdy policy midterm stuff, and then we're going to talk a little bit about fun campaign life, a little bit of walk down memory lane for Jen and for me, uh, who are, I think, happily not employed by any campaign at this particular moment. Yes, really happy not to eat that food, nasty campaign food. Vegetables on pizza count, right? (laughs) Um, Sure. (laughs) I think if you're working on a campaign at this point in the cycle, you are telling yourself, that vegetables that come on pizza count. Yes, and, and that and is And coffee, okay. coffee is actually hydrating. A hundred percent. Whatever you need to tell yourself to get through 8 p.m. on Tuesday. But first, I think we're going to start with a little bit of substance. Yes, we are. Today, we are starting with housing in Massachusetts. And we have two amazing guests with us, two experts in the field. Um, we've got Rachel Heller from CHAPA, Citizens Housing and Planning Association, and Paul McMorrow from Mass Housing. So welcome here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This should be a fun discussion. Yeah. Considering there's a ton of housing and it's really affordable. Really, really easy to access. I don't think we have any issues that we need to worry about, right? The question is, how did we fix it so well? (laughs) Yes. Yes, that is the topic of today's conversation. No, so... You know, I think there's no denying that just like transportation, which we talked about last week, housing is increasingly going up on people's list of uh, issues that they're concerned about. Whether you're engaged in sort of the civic conversation in politics or not, just going about your daily life, it is uh, more and more clear that the cost of housing and access to housing is a challenge that we're facing. And certainly the conversation around, you know, will Amazon HQ2 uh, invade our city or not has only elevated that conversation because where the heck would those people live? And yet we're in the middle of a campaign season and call me crazy, but I don't hear, you know, screams about housing echoing throughout the campaign. I mean, last week in the final debate of the gubernatorial race, Janet Wu did ask a question about housing, but it didn't really bubble up to the top of any post-debate coverage. It came up in the primary debates a little bit, but again, didn't really crack the surface and break through. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what's going on with this political conversation about housing right now. Well, I think for a long time, housing has been seen as a personal matter and people work hard to get their home and you know and they achieve that american dream and now we're at the point where everybody's being impacted by the high home prices the high rents they're outpacing our salaries and we're starting to see that there's not a lot of opportunities for downsizing in our own communities there's not a lot of places for young professionals to be able to buy a home People are commuting further to get to their jobs, uh, and you know, then it, this impacts people across income levels. And now, and I think we, it's, it's hard. we got to figure out how to make that shift. There's a reason why all of this is happening. It's not a personal issue. There are a whole bunch of policy decisions that have been made over time that have resulted in, the, in where we are now, why we don't have enough homes for people, and why home prices and rents are so high. And so I think it's been an issue that's hard to talk about. It's real for everyone. And it's, it's hard to get at what are the policies then to, to make these changes. I mean, I, for me personally, the, the thing that's attractive and, and you know, as 
caused me to work in housing is is the fact that housing's tangible to people in a way that a lot of um, other things are not. You know, we we aspire to live in a great house in a great neighborhood and be able to 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 afford that home, and that that's a you know that's a kind of personal. Um, economic relationship that you have with your house. But the, you know, the question of whether or not you're able to achieve that um, is, is really driven by political decisions. And um, I think you know, what we're seeing here now is the result of you know, decades of political decisions that don't support um, that aspiration to you know, that everyone have a home that and they can And political afford. decisions that have supported that aspiration <clears throat> differently for different people mm-hmm. over the years. Correct. I mean, there's a, a very clear like racial implication around housing over the history, not just in Massachusetts, but... Right. We are living the effects of policies that have been in place for a very long time and the newer policies that perpetuate segregation and uh, really limit opportunities for people who are part of our workforce who cannot afford to live anywhere near where they work. Um, So I think now we're getting to the point where we see that we continue to live in a very segregated society. We know that this impacts all of us. And now we need to move to, okay, what do we need to do to address it? It's impacting our economy. We will get to the point where we don't have enough homes. Like you were raising a moment ago, if Amazon comes here, we don't have enough homes. We don't have enough homes for the people who are here now. Uh, So we really need to make some land use decisions that are going to open up more opportunities. And that's good for our quality of life and for allowing our economy to grow. So, you know, it's interesting. So we recently did a podcast on transportation. And so this is actually, you know, a great, um, I think transportation and housing go hand in hand. And so I grew up on Long Island. And on Long Island, you have numerous communities that have hubs, business hubs, and people can live and work within, you know, 20, 20 minutes, technically, depending on traffic, but, you know, 20 minutes of, they don't have to go into New York City to work. They can work on in different spots on Long Island. Um, and the train system works really well there. And, and so, you know, I look at Massachusetts and it's, you know, well, now there's some places, you know, more places off of 95, off of 128 that you can work and live past 125. Uh, and I mean, yeah, 128 and, and 95, and you can live out that way. But if you live in the city or work in the city, it is so expensive. It's not just housing, it's education, because not every area has a public school. So then you have to look into private schools. If so you are in a position to do if you're so. In a pri- but, but here's the thing, the housing goes along, right? Because if you can't afford to make that choice of where your kid is going to go to school, you also probably can't afford to live in those areas. So now all the housing that went up on the seaport, I mean, it's amazing. I look at it and I say, well, that's like senior citizen housing, right? Because there's no school and you can't get anywhere to get to a school and it's super expensive. So it's after you've sold your beautiful home in Dover or, you know, in Medfield and or in Andover and you say, oh, okay, now I'm going to go and move yeah. in my retired life. And we wonder why the seaport isn't diverse. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I, and that, that is really an issue. So, I mean, you know, I remember when my grandparents bought their house on Long Island, they moved from Brooklyn, and my grandmother had this great story of it was a very Irish Catholic neighborhood. And she went in and wanted to buy a house, and the real estate broker said, no, sorry, you're Italian. 
we, we don't accept Italians. And it feels almost like that hasn't changed. It's now no longer whether you're Italian or Irish or, you know, it now has become, you know, based on gender, I mean, on, based on race, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you could be in those areas. I mean, if you look around Boston, you walk around the streets of Boston, it's, it, it isn't very diverse. And so, you know, how do we, well, how do we diverse, fix that? it's not integrated. It's not integrated. Right? We're right. actually a majority minority city. But well, you can't tell. I mean, if you walk around most neighborhoods, you walk around the North End, Charlestown, Beacon Hill, Back Bay, South End, you know, I mean, it's it's not very integrated. No, for sure. But you can certainly tell if you take yourself out of those environments and go to more diverse parts of the city. But this is, Rachel, what you were talking about, about decades of policy dating back to World War II and before that, Mm -hmm. that has gotten us to this lack of integration and the fact Mm -hmm. that we haven't really done a whole heck of a lot to change things since then. So talk to us a little bit about that, but I'm also so curious, where is the outrage and engagement beyond, and I say this with love, housing policy nerds like you on this issue because we all know that we're in a crisis and yet you don't see people rushing to the polls and asking our you know elected officials or candidates about this in a really strong way so what's what's up I think on the the first question about segregation there was a really good book that came out about a year ago the color of law and it documents all of the policies that have been put in place and it highlights Massachusetts as one of the states where it intentionally, there were policies created to intentionally segregate us and to make it harder for people of color to buy homes. And these policies persist. So even if you have someone who moves to a community that has policies that have historically been um, resulted in segregation, it's now our responsibility to change those because we need to look at our communities and say, why are we so segregated? You know, you talked about Boston being segregated. I live in the suburbs. Suburbs are extremely segregated. I'm near multiple job sectors, very little affordability, and very, very segregated. So we now t- need to take it upon ourselves to change those policies. When you look at rates of home ownership lending, there is a huge disparity between people who are white who, who become homeowners and, and get loans and access to um, to mortgage products and people of color. And we need to look at that and figure out what how we fix that. This is clearly built on decades, decades and decades and decades of policies that we now need to undo. And then a lot of decisions we've made since then have really made it, have perpetuated that. You know, the, the more that we try to control growth and you know, rezone for larger land lots. That's driving up prices. That's perpetuating segregation. So we have to change it. Paul, do you want to comment on why there's no outrage? <laughs> I, I think it's 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 difficult to mobilize um, outrage against you know supply demand imbalances in the way in the same way that it's difficult to to mobilize outrage against um, whether it be a, a train that's broken down or um, you know, um, you know, a spike in in, in homelessness um, in a place that's that's visible. Um, it's you know, all right. We can all live tweet yeah, when our train breaks down. We can. It's tougher to live tweet when you're trying to buy a house. Yeah, that that you know that it's <laughs> it's difficult to live tweet the fact that my rent is going up. I'm struggling with student loans, and I you know, I'm having difficulty saving for a three and a half uh, percent down payment as housing prices escalate. Like that's. That's a very it, – it, it's a real situation, but it's really esoteric, and it's, it's tough to get at. And it's tough to get at that, you know, that is the case because 
um, we have a great economy and we're adding jobs really, really quickly. And um, we have a system of land use where 351 municipalities set um, set their own pace of growth. And in any one of those municipalities, you know, citizens are making rational decisions to protect their own property values and protect their own views and protect um, the way that their neighborhoods look. But when you compound all that, um, it, it, it adds up to a situation where we are not keeping pace with the job growth that we're achieving and that it's not sustainable over the long run. It's a, it's a really difficult thing to, to, to crystallize. Um, that sounds like but, making the case for participating in local elections next yeah, year, like, not just the but, big midterms. But doesn't this also, absolutely, which goes to, doesn't this impact local zoning boards? I mean, if local zoning boards were more, um, you know, less nimby and more into growing the the areas, right, and doing a little bit more like, you know, what Waltham has done and, um, you know, what you see in Needham and, and along, you know, 95, mm -hmm. um, I think that would be more helpful, right? I mean, I was, I was debating a Boston City Councilor recently, and her, um, her, solution to housing in Boston was to build more housing, affordable housing out in Shrewsbury and to fix the MBTA. I was like, I think you're a Boston city councilor. <laughs> maybe we should talk about, you know, inside Boston, but, but and maybe the answer is both. But maybe the answer is yeah. if you're going to build affordable housing in Shrewsbury, then also have, you know, more, um, more economic development that's going on in different parts of the state. Right. So people who are on the Cape have greater economic development that are going on down there. So it goes to really electing people to your zoning boards that are not just your friends, but are also have the best interests in your towns in there. That is a huge point. And there was a study that just came out uh, from BU about who participates in local land use decisions and who's attending those meetings and who's testifying. And overwhelmingly, there's one particular type of voice that's being heard that doesn't necessarily reflect the rest of the community. And so how do we get more people? How do we change the public participation process? It's very hard for people to get to a mid meeting. Uh, it is white male landowners yeah. <laughs> or homeowners. That's I'm going to guess Paul is going to say this. But I know Paul is someone who is I'm gonna open. Older white male landowners? <laughs> yeah, it's probably, probably a little bit more demographically skewed on the older end. <laughs> so how do we change the ways that people interact with local government? And who is on those boards? And when do they have meetings? And how can people give input when they can't after a day at work and taking care of the kids and doing all that stuff? weigh in on what's happening in their community. We really have to look at that and figure it out because there are voices that are not being heard. And then also, who hasn't been able to get into that community? Because now, the people in that community, like Paul said, are deciding what happens in that community. So now we're missing a voice of people who can't even get access. So I, I think the encouraging thing to me is that this conversation is starting to shift, and it's starting to shift at a moment that's um, earlier than it took for you know a, a place like San Francisco to kind of come to grips with the, this crisis moment. Yeah, um, clearly they waited too long. Yeah. So <laughs> last month, um, we were standing alongside Marty Walsh and Joe Curtitoni and 13 other Metro Boston mayors and managers. As you know, they all stood together at the podium and held hands and, and took a step together you know, forward together and said, "The housing crisis that we're experiencing affects all of our citizens, and it's something that." Uh, it's a crisis that crosses municipal boundaries, and we need a collective response. And we are collectively committed um, to increasing the pace at which we're we're building new housing, and that's going to benefit 
all of us. Um, it's the first time that um, a group of mayor, a group of municipalities that's that large has has made a statement like that. Um, the hard part comes now in terms of actually putting that commitment into new homes for people to live in. Um, but the fact that the region is committed to a solution um, with with the state at the table is is a really encouraging sign and something that, that doesn't exist in many other places. It is really encouraging. And I think as we're talking about overall production, which was so exciting to see this announcement get made, also intentionally thinking about affordable production, anti-displacement uh, strategies to help people stay in their communities when they start to change, and really looking at diversity and how we how we stop being such a segregated uh, community or segregated state. But well, I think it, that step forward was huge. Well, it sounds like step one is on Tuesday. Go vote for the candidate or candidates of your choice who uh, you think will make the biggest difference in housing. And we can revisit the local question next year because it looks like that's where uh, that's where the rubber meets the road. Absolutely. Well, Rachel and Paul, thank you so much for being here and being our guest today. We really appreciate this. Yeah, and happy uh, almost election day. Yeah. Thank you. Thank too. you. And everyone, go vote. That was an awesome conversation with uh, with Rachel and Paul. A on little housing. bit overwhelming. Yeah, you know, and it's so good though because we need people like that that are experts in the field to be able to to really hone in on you know what is going on, what we need, where we should be going, and I'm so grateful that we have people like that out there. Yeah, and I think the challenge is how do you take stakeholders, whether they're homeowners or employers or um, you know other people with a um, a real tie-in to the future of our state and our economy. How do you get them to mobilize and care about housing just as much as our housing policy nerds do? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and again, what's the most important thing? Making sure that the right voices yeah. are sitting in vote. locally elected vote, positions vote, vote, vote. so vote. that way they're making the right decisions, right? So, so well, that, speaking of voting, yes. we are mere hours away from, you know, our our Christmas, our Hanukkah, our <laughs> our high holy day, election day. In the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and around the United States. We're very excited. And uh, we thought that we'd have a little bit of fun here in the, the hours and days before Election Day with two campaign veterans to find out what what dark depths of hell are people working on campaigns experiencing right now in the lead up to Election Day. This is perhaps, Jen, our... Um, our way to feel very glad that we are not experiencing this right now. It might be a little bit of torture on our end. Yes, yes. You know, I have fond memories of those days working hard on campaigns and the last minutes and what it was like and the sleep deprivation and feeling like this is never going to end hell. And I'm so happy to be a woman of a certain age that I don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> Well, today we're really, really grateful to be joined by Matt Sisk and Sarah Groh, a uh, Republican Democratic campaign veteran, respectively, to uh, to join us in cackling with evil laughter about what all of our compatriots out there in the field are experiencing. So Matt and Sarah, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Thank you. So give us a little bit of insight. You're on a campaign right now. You're 24, 48 hours out from that 8 p.m. polls closing. What is your life like? 
<laughs> Ladies first. Sure. Well, you know, I think it is um, just total tunnel vision, right? Mm. You are so close. Um, you are thinking about, um, you know, the lack of vegetables, the lack of sleep. Um, <laughs> but that's not even really registering. You're just thinking about one more door and one more phone call. And you're thinking about how to deploy those resources and make those last minute decisions. Um, and I think everything else goes out the window. Um, and I'm always reminded in the final stretch, I felt this way, you know, coming down the final stretch, heading into our primary, that there is a point where everyone and by has our primary, uh, we mean you are the winning campaign manager for Ayanna Presley's win in September. Yes. Yes, yeah. we should say that. No, um, honored to have that title. You know, um, it was an incredible team effort. Um, all credit to Ayanna, but also this powerhouse grassroots army that we built. Um, you know, and I think in that final stretch, um, some things start to go on autopilot, right? You're making those final resource decisions, but at the same time, you know, I think there's this point when you get a few hours out where it's in the hands of the universe. Um, and that's always a terrifying, but also a pretty exciting feeling. Yeah. I, and it, it's interesting. Congratulations on your victory. Thank uh, you. Really impressive. Um, I think it depends on what level you're at in the campaign. So somebody who's done the, the literally pulling people out of houses, uh, making the last minute phone calls uh, compared to when you're at a little bit higher level in a campaign, it's almost worse when you're at a higher level because you're not expected to make the phone calls and pull the people out. So it's like, it's a terribly long day. Uh, if you're not doing those activities. And I always like seeing new people to the process. Um, I had this uh, mentor in life um, who uh, I worked on a first campaign, and I, I think I was in my 20s in college and I showed up at the state senate campaign, and I was for election day, I was dressed in a jacket and tie, you know. <laughs> and uh, this this guy, guy, his uh, name's Ron Kaufman, he ribbed me in the, he hit me in the ribs and said, hey, kid, anyone who's dressed up on election day didn't do any work. <laughs> <laughs> I always remembered that uh, moving forward. Words were no, never spoken. Two so words true. never spoken. So yeah, I, I think I agree with you. It's yeah. it's the anxiety, mm -hmm. the the, uh, and no matter where you're at, you know, especially obviously close elections, uh, it's even worse. I also think, and I don't know if you've experienced this. There's a bit of camaraderie on mm -hmm. either side. I've been literally knocking on doors or or lit, you know canvassing, lit dropping, whatever you want to call it. On one side of the street, my opponent's uh, team's on the other side. And it's, there's, a, there's a little bit of rivalry. I think amongst campaign workers, it isn't as bad as it is. And I, I think there's a camaraderie about that, you know. In the trenches together. In the trenches together, yeah. you know, looking for that leftover Halloween candy uh, that might be, might <laughs> be in the office. Election day is always yeah. really well-timed for that yeah, it, reason. It's beautiful, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's something about coming down that final stretch. And I think um, I was so privileged to manage this cycle. Um, but it's hard to be in a boiler room and not getting in one more final door, you know. Yeah. I think to me, like, um, coming up in the trenches in that way, you know, on in that final stretch, you just you don't want to leave any stone unturned. Right. Every voter you can reach, every moment. Um, my team will actually tell you this was, uh, they thought this was hilarious, but, you know, you're sitting in the boiler room all day with your, your core management team. And I got on the hub dialer at one point. <laughs> you know, yeah. you have, like, you a small window in between returns. Yeah. And I'm like, right. I just, if I can't be on doors, I got to be on calls. Right. Um, that's very real. You just want to leave it all on the field. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's different, too, race by race. You know, you've got a, a statewide race for governor. Um you know, you move that even down one level to a congressional race, it gets more personal. Um, and it get, gets, you're more involved. You're talking about, you know, 40, 50, 60 communities as opposed to all 351. And then you get, you know, one of my clients now is a state rep candidate. And um, you can't get any more personal than that. I mean, we're talking about two or three towns. These people grow up with each other. They know each other. They're neighbors. It's 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 hand-to-hand -hand combat, you know, door-to-door -door stuff. And it's, it's so... It, it gets aggressive, but it, you know it's it is also what it's all about. It's a lot of a lot about fun. I called it. We were, I was on a conference call this morning, and every you know, 
you all know, this things start, just start going sideways at a certain point. It's, you know, when is this robocall going out? When, you know, when is this Facebook endorsement happening? Well, wait a minute, I thought we had this picture with it. And the candidate, you know, I wish... I wish the candidates would go away at a certain point, to be honest. <laughs> you know, especially off the decision-making process. I was going to actually Sometimes they get, they, well, they do, they get in the weeds. And um, we can talk about candidate family members, too. Right, yeah. Um, please. That's one I'm dealing with now is, is exclu- exclusively <laughs> challenging. In a very good way, though. So I said, to, you know, there was a small freak out this morning. I said, look, guys, everyone needs to step back. For the next 72 hours, this is pretty much organized chaos. So you got to, you know, let go and, and let it happen and trust the people that you've hired and ask to help you and your supporters. And it's going to it's going to work out. You know? So that was what I was going to ask both of you is, you know, who at the end, at the very end, who would you rather be around? Right. The <laughs> candidate or the or the field staff, you know, like the young kids who are eating the pizza that's been sitting around in the boxes for six hours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so wearing the jeans that could have walked coffee. into the room on yeah, their own. The, the yeah. jeans that I remember looking at a friend of mine who is is older and came into Massachusetts to help on on Brown's race. And I looked at him at one point and I go, are you homeless? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he had changed out of his clothes for right. days. And so breeze is your friend. On a right. <laughs> but I mean, where are your best stories from? Are your best stories from the people that are on the ground and are making those calls and going door to door or just watching the candidate, you know, without giving any specifics, but, mm-hmm. you know, the candidate and, and kind of being the psychologist as, as former party chair, I felt yeah. like I spent yeah. a lot of time being psychologist mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of wanted to be the one running around and, and doing the door knocking. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of both, yeah. you know. I um, On our campaign this cycle and on past cycles, um, I think the young volunteers that come in are everything, mm-hmm. right? You see folks seeing for the first time that politics could play a meaningful role in their life, and there's just, like, boundless energy and, and vision and conviction, um, and I love that. I also think my, my favorite folks coming down the final stretch are the somewhat seasoned operatives who just, like, walk in, and they find a chair somewhat close to the manager, mm-hmm. and they just kind of sit and watch, and they're like, what do you need? And then they just start to do things, right? Mm. Those things that we know have to happen. They go take out the trash and they, you know, they're the folks that can help you make a strategy call, but they're also just there to do the grunt work. Um, I was just talking to a team of folks that, um, you know, have been on a number of cycles and they're headed down to help the Stacey Abrams camp Mm. in the final stretch. Um, And that's exactly their mindset right now. They're like, we're just there to be helpers. You know, the less visible we are, the better. Like we'll just take volunteers with no ego. Exactly. So there's no, um, no handholding, you know, no, of VIP treatment. They're just there to be in the trenches because, you know, they're nostalgic about when their jeans could stand up without Febreze. Right? <laughs> you know, they had it slept in 10 days and they just come, you know, with armfuls of coffee and that's a good spot to be in. Yeah, I, I would agree. It, it, I, I enjoy being around new folks. Um, I enjoy being around new folks that um, get bit by the bug mm-hmm. and actually watching that light bulb turn on. I think that's amazing because I, you know, at least for me, and I, this may not speak well of me in certain extent but I think when you're in this business uh, I won't speak for others is what I'm trying to say you get a little jaded um, and it stops becoming so much about policy and conviction as it does getting to 51% right um, so to watch a young idealistic person come in and I'm sure it's the same on the Democratic side on the Republican side you see them come in and they are just starry-eyed and interested and in, it's not necessarily age it could be somebody who's just turned on by an issue and to watch them get into it and understand and start using the 
you know, the app and figure it out and, you know, making phone calls and seeing that what they're doing is actually making a difference. Um, that's probably my favorite part. As a Republican, you know, we don't have as many winning campaigns in the state. So when we do win, I'd love to be around the candidate. But um, when we lose, I don't want to be. That's for sure. Yeah, seriously. But you often have to be. Um, and, uh, you know, I think therapist is part of it. You know, a couple of the races I'm working on, are it's going to be tough for them. And I think they know it. And, you know, every candidate wants to win, right? I, I, think, I don't think you can say anyone got into a race to want to lose it. I have lost and I have won. Winning is better. It certainly is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is indeed. Um, try, try being a Republican right. in Massachusetts, yeah. Jesse. Yeah. Hot take. You, you Winning know, is better. You know what it's like to lose. Like you get into rooms. I mean, I, I'll sit at, you know, in, in uh, at campaign meetings and, you know, at the very end and volunteers come in who have just started and they're like, what do you think? What do you think? And I want to be like. Oh, yeah, we're totally losing. <laughs> you, want, you want me to be honest with you or do you want me to right. lie to you? Because At what point should I burst lose. your bubble? And then when they're so upset and crying and, like, shivering and just, you know, I mean, there are a couple of campaigns through the years that you watch people and you just say, you're really, really did you not expect this? Because I saw this a million right. miles away. And, oh, yeah, by the way, as a Republican, like, how, how are you handling this so well? Well, I'm a Republican Massachusetts. You just get used to it. Like, you kind mm -hmm. of know that, you know, it's probably going to go this way unless the moon and the stars and the sun and everything align perfectly or you have Charlie Baker. Like, <laughs> it goes one of two ways. And you know what? What those young activists, I feel like, you know, what those youngins don't know uh, is that, whether they work in politics again, whether they work on another campaign again, they will have learned stuff and made friends that right. I think you can only 100%. make on a campaign, yeah, win unique. or lose. Mm -hmm. So uh, last question, what's everybody doing on Election Day? I will be with our folks just like it started. Um, I'm so excited about it. I mean, I just, I've got so much love for our volunteers and I think there's so many unsung heroes on our campaign too. Um, you know, I think we have like so many young folks that have engaged for the first time. We also have like this cadre of um, women and faith leaders that have just been in this work for generations and seeing them in action is pretty incredible too. Um, you know, they just like, they are the heart and soul of our party. Um, and so I love being with them. I'm so excited to be with them on election night um and to be with our supporters and to you know dream about what comes next but yeah, you guys uh, get to make it official we get to make it official yeah yeah, yeah no we're we're working up until the final stretch you know it's uh it's funny uh, my in-laws often say to me they're like are you on vacation right now <laughs> <laughs> i'm like well if this is a vacation right. and, uh, i don't know where i went terribly wrong but no it's exciting and i think we're doing everything we can to support folks here locally too you yeah. know there's just a ton of work to do this cycle really important things on the ballot so um we'll be working up until 8:01 p.m just like everyone else and Matt, where will you be filling in the map? I will be uh, splitting my time between my the two statewide candidates I'm working for. So Anthony Amore for Secretary of State and Keiko Oral for State Treasurer. Excellent. So. Well, good luck to everybody on both sides. It is a, a long day after a long campaign. May you know your Dunkin' Donuts and Munchins, Munchkins sustain you seriously <laughs> until the polls close and beyond. If you're the unlucky soul with a recount, absolutely. Cool. So Sarah Grow, campaign manager for Ayanna Presley, thank you so much. And Matt thank Sisk, you. veteran campaign guru and longtime buddy of mine, someone who I met when I was very young working in government. So See, thank you, you both thank very you much for last. being here thank you for and me. everyone out there. Jesse and I can't tell you enough. 
whether you are 18 or 118, whether you are male, female, whatever you are, whatever your political view is, please make sure you go vote. People worked very hard to give us this privilege, and you need to exercise it. Absolutely. Polls are open 7 a.m. till 8 p.m. on Tuesday. Get out there and vote. And we will be back in about two weeks, I think, with our with our next podcast. Can't wait. All right. Hi, Mom. Hello, Mom. Didn't talk bad about you today. <laughs> That'll be for the next one. Thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs>